In Nehemiah, God is using his people to return and restore a physical wall. But he's doing so much more in restoring the hearts of his people to walk in the light of his word. Their failure to do so is why they are in exile. It's why they've endured so much suffering. It's why the wall fell. Yet God is a God who restores. Legendary football coach, football season's starting, I'm going there. (laughs) Legendary football coach Vince Lombardi, coached the Green Bay Packers back in the day. He famously said about leadership, he said, leaders are not born, they're made. Agree with his statement that leaders are not just born, they are made. It's a learned quality, and maybe you're born with some particular personality traits that lend themselves to leadership, but leaders are certainly made. Perhaps you've read some leadership books. I mean, if we've got to learn leadership, there's some learning that's involved. And so maybe you've read books like Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, John Maxwell, never forget this book, the length of this book, 21 uh, Irrevocable Laws of Leadership, Drucker, Woodson, now Jocko. Anybody read Jocko? All right. Navy SEAL kind of guy. Books on leaderships abound. If you just do a search on Amazon or or Google, you can find thousands and thousands of books on leaderships. But the truth is, leadership and the development of a leader often, most often, is forged through the crucible of life. The crucible of life that there are hard knocks, there's challenges that you have to go through to learn how to lead, you also can watch other people lead and their failures and you get back up. You fail and you get back up over and over again because learning is more caught than what? Taught. What do you think is one of some of the most important characteristics of a good leader from your experience? How are leaders made? Are they self-made? Are they independent? Are they just people who get things done? And what is the difference, perhaps in our world, what is the difference in just secular leadership and what we would say as a spiritual leader? What are the things that those two things have in common and how are they different? What are the common threads and the differentials there? And how about you? Are you a leader? And maybe you say, hey, pastor, I'm a D. I'm not a high D personality. I'm not an Enneagram 8. I'm, I'm not a leader. I'm just an introvert, and I let other people lead. And here's what I want to tell you. You are a leader. It may not be this big, bold thing. You may not be the CEO of a company or leading something, but you are a leader because leader is influence, and God has put, placed you here to be influential in people's lives. And so you are a leader, but what does that look like? How do I learn that? Today I want to start in a place, an older, more seasoned book than the books that I listed to you earlier. From the good book, God's book. This is God's design for leadership. And we see it through the example in the life of Nehemiah, just an ordinary man. So turn with me 
to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles around on your seat, page 398. And we're going to look at the book of Nehemiah for the fall season. And the reality is, is the book of Nehemiah is about Nehemiah's leadership, but it's actually about something much, much more. This book is about how God restores his people. How his people have wandered off and he brings them back to him as they listen and live in light of his word. But this morning in the first few verses of Nehemiah, we've got to meet the leader that God uses as an instrument to bring his people back home. Marks, three marks this morning of a godly leader. His motivation or her motivation, knowledge, priorities, what a leader does and what a leader does not do. I want to show you three critical marks of a godly leader, and maybe you might be surprised at what you see. Nehemiah chapter 1, look at it with me, please. Nehemiah chapter 1, and we'll just take the first four verses, and then we'll walk our way through all the way through to verse 11 as we go. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these words. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, worked on that one. How it happened in the month of Chislev, that's December, in the 20th year, the reign of the king Artaxerxes, I was in Susa, the citadel, it's the capital, that Haniah, one of the brothers, one of my brothers, Nehemiah's physical brother, came with certain men from Judah. So they're in Susa, some men came from Judah, a long way away. And I asked them concerning the Jews, Nehemiah's a Jew, who escaped, who have survived the exile, we'll unpack that, and concerning Jerusalem, and they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, this is Nehemiah, I sat down, and I wept, and I mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You ever gone to the movies, and you show up like 30 minutes late to the movie, and the rest of the movie you're saying, Who's, who are the main characters? What's going on? And you're completely lost. Maybe it feels that way right now because I just read four verses and you're like, I don't know who Nehemiah is. I don't know any of the context, so please help me out so I understand the rest of it. I'm going to help you out. But I've got to give you a little bit of background to understand what's going on in those verses that I just read. So, so give me a moment, if you will, to give you a little history lesson. Students, I know you have history class, but just bear with me. Okay, it's going to unpack this so you you basically take what you just read, which is black and white, and make it color, all right? So way back in the day, God had come to his people and said, listen, if you obey me and follow me, then you will be blessed. Parents, you ever say that to your kids? You will be blessed. It will go well for you. But if you don't, and you turn to your own path in your own way, there's trouble waiting there. You ever heard that? Kids, there's trouble waiting there. And not only that, God had promised his people land and seed and blessing to make them a great nation and give them a promised land. And he said, if you don't obey me and you turn to your own way, then I will scatter you. I will take you out of that promised land and scatter you amongst the nations and that land will be overrun with other people. That's Deuteronomy 28. High level view of Deuteronomy 28. He's promised blessing to people if they follow him. And he's also promised discipline for those that don't follow him and turn to their own 
way. Predictably, the nation Israel chooses their own way, and they choose to sin against God, and that's exactly what happened to them. They got kicked out of their land. They were scattered, and the way God chose to do that is to bring other nations to Israel and scatter them and overtake them. And the first nation that comes after a long history of disobedience and going their own way, the Assyrians come, and they take basically the northern kingdom of Israel, and they overrun it, the Assyrians do. And then the Babylonians, the next great empire, comes after that, and they sack Judah in 586 B.C., and they destroy Jerusalem. This is the center of worship of God in the Old Testament, Jerusalem. Every Jew understood it as the place of worship, the place where they came before God and worshiped him, where sacrifices were made, and they destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the walls of Jerusalem, and they destroyed, completely destroyed the temple. There was nothing left of it. The city of Jerusalem was in rubble. And then you see they take most of the Jews that were in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem, and, and they take them to Babylon, the Babylonians, and they take them into what's called exile. Do you see it in the text, exile? They take them into exile, but about 50 years later, it, it's, it's like the, the Babylonian empire got eaten up by who's next? Anybody know? History, Persian. The Persian Empire swallowed them up. If you see 300, the Persian Empire. They swallowed them up, the Babylonians. So guess what? You've got all these displaced Jews, not in Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. And they are, have captors, which are Babylonians. And then they have more captors because they captured the Babylon. The Persians captured the Babylonians. So now what? I mean, the Persian Empire was massive, and they couldn't police all the areas, including Jerusalem and Israel, that they've taken over. But something amazing happens. Just like any good parent to their kid would say, hey, there is blessing if you obey God. There is blessing if you obey God, and there are problems if you don't. But like every kid, myself included, I've wandered away. You've wandered away. But you know what a good parent does like God the Father does? He's still a God of promise. He's still a God, even though his people have fallen away, have gone away, he offers an open door. Always, through the Old Testament, and he offers an open door for those who have walked away, for those who have disobeyed. And that's what you see God promising to people, the people of Israel who have fallen away, return and I will restore you. And something amazing happens in the book of Ezra. I'm almost done with my history lesson, all right? You get to the book of Ezra, which is a contemporary of Nehemiah. Basically, it's one book. If you go to the old manuscripts, it's, it's one book. We've, put it, we've divided it in two, but it's really the same history. When you get to Ezra chapter 1, something amazing happens. Something the people of God don't see coming. God is working in the heart of King Cyrus in chapter 1 of Ezra and in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus says, hey, Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem and rebuild your city and rebuild the house of God and rebuild the walls. We'll give it to you. I think he had some, a little bit of ulterior motive because that meant if there was protection of the walls and the city was rebuilt, it was fortified for the Persian Empire. And yet, and yet, he says, y'all can go back. 
And so a guy named Zerubbabel in the Old Testament takes the first wave of Jews back all the way to Jerusalem. And if you know the book of Ezra, it's all about the house of the Lord, the place of worship that they're restoring and rebuilding. And so they do that. And then the second wave comes with Ezra, and he brings more people to Jerusalem to restore and rebuild the city. See, God is working behind the scenes, but something happens. There's two problems. One problem is this. Persia doesn't care that much about Israel. It's just kind of a vassal state. And so there are bandits and clowns who live and inhabit Israel, who the last thing that they want is a wall that protects the city. And so they want chaos. They want Gotham City, right? And so they run into trouble. The Jews were building the temple, run into trouble. And these inhabitants of the land, Ezra 4 tells us, they tried to trick the Persians to say, hey, these people, these Jews who are rebuilding the city, they're really trouble. You can go back and look at the records of how disruptive they are, and they come up with all kinds of reasons, and they tell the Persians, you shouldn't let these guys keep doing this. You shouldn't let them rebuild the walls. You shouldn't let them rebuild the temple. And so you see in Ezra chapter 4, I want you to see this because it's pertinent to what Nehemiah is experiencing right here. In Ezra chapter 4, you see this decree. Cyrus said, hey, you can rebuild. Artaxerxes, the next king, said this, therefore make a decree that the men be made to cease. These Jews who were rebuilding the wall, and this city will not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. This is Artaxerxes. And take care not to be slack in this matter. And a few verses later, you see that they come in by force, and they persecute the Jews, who the king has already said before them, hey, you can build. So it stops. Nehemiah doesn't know that. What you see in verses 1 through 4 that I just read to you Let's walk through it, back through it. It's in December. It's in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. He's in Susa. This is like the winter palace for the Persian Empire. Hananiah, this is Nehemiah's, we think, his real brother. He's coming back from Judah, and his brother gives him the report. Nehemiah didn't know. Nehemiah didn't know that the rebuilding of the city had stopped. And he tells him, he tells him that it, it had stopped. They're in great trouble for the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. I think we have this slide. And I want to show you, this is our graphic. Jake Allen, thank you for making this. And I think it's a great picture of verses 3 and 4 there. Where the city, they're coming back into the city. It's on fire. The gates and the walls are disrupted. And yet you see the sun in the background. I love this. The people of God coming back in. Thank you for that. And so you come to this text and you see, what is Nehemiah? What is his response? This is where you get kind of a first glimpse at a man of character, a leader. This is the first thing that you see. What does he do? As soon as I heard these words, verse 4 there, I sat down. It's a posture of mourning. I wept and mourned for days. Listen, I don't think this is Nehemiah the leader emoting and getting, you know, in tune with his emotions, that's not what go, what's going on. I don't think when you get to heaven, you're going to see a Nehemiah in skinny jeans and drinking his soy latte. You're going to find out more about this in this book. Maybe you will. I don't know. That's not what's happening here. Here's what's happening. 
This is the first glimpse of his character. Nehemiah has never seen Jerusalem, and yet he weeps over it. He's been born in exile. There's a whole generation of people that have never been there, but they know this is the place of worship to God, that that's where his name is great. And he also sees what's happening to the people of God in Jerusalem. And so here's your first thought. Godly leadership is first marked by a deep heart burden for God's name and God's people. That's Nehemiah's motivation. That's why he's weeping and mourning because he knows God's promises. He knows if the people of God turn and repent and come back to him, then there will be blessing. He also knows that the promise that God made good on is that they would be scattered. And so he trusts in God's character and God's promise. And he cares deeply about the people of God. you got to see that. This is the motivation. This is the zeal that Nehemiah has for God's people and God's name. When you think about that, I I can't help but think about the burdens that God gives people for the care of his people and his name. I think about that when like hurricanes this season, right, when they hit the Gulf Coast, whether it's Harvey or Katrina or all the different hurricanes, what do God's people do? They mobilize, they're burdened for other people, and they go and help. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe your house has been flooded and you've experienced the care of God's people. It's when families in our church are in need and you're burdened to help them. Maybe it's when the church down the street splits up because they get into arguments and we as a church come and care for the people who remain. Or maybe it's the persecution, it's probably a better application, when persecution happens to God's people, when they are, as this text says, when they are in great trouble and shame. I think Middle East, I think the 1040 window where Christians around the world are persecuted, which doesn't feel anything, we don't feel that at all here really. I mean, yeah, we got words that we have to deal with and people shaming us and canceling us. and th- That's nothing compared to the persecution that these people were going through then or what people go through now for the name of Christ. I think of persecution, I think of a guy named, we know as Brother Andrew. Ever heard of this guy? Brother Andrew, the God smuggler, they called him. Has a ministry called Open Doors. He just died last year, but he came to faith really early. He's, from, he's a Dutch guy, and he became a missionary And you know how he became a missionary? He went on a trip to communist Russia or Poland. It was his first trip, and then communist Russia. He went on a trip, and he was going as a tourist, but he was going to see the persecuted church, the underground church in these places. And he was amazed at how encouraged these people in the underground church who could die for their faith were just by seeing another believer not from that place. And he was also blown away at the fact that not many of them had Bibles at all. And so instead of just weeping and mourning and going back, he got to work. He continued to go into places and he began to bring Bibles to places. So in the 1950s, all through the 1950s, he went into communist Russia where he could have been killed like that going through checkpoints with Bibles for a decade in Russia delivering Bibles and encouragement to people. He had a burden. And then in the 60s, in China, for a decade more, he spent in China delivering Bibles and encouragement to persecuted believers under the wall. 
And then from the 70s through the 90s, this guy's doing this this long. He's still alive. He's doing this in the Middle East for all these years. That's a man with a burden for God. It's a man who is burdened for those in need. Can I ask you the question? What's your burden? You got any burdens that God has laid on your heart like a Nehemiah? Maybe you're not going to rebuild a wall and do those. What's your burden? When you look around the world that is broken and in shambles, what's the burden that God has given you? Maybe it's taking care of kids who don't have food in Montgomery County. Maybe it's helping the poor. Maybe it's sex trafficking What is your burden? Do you have a burden? Can I tell you what often happens to us? What often happens to us is we live in this 24-hour news cycle, and we see something, and we're moved by it, but it just keeps going, and we forget about it, and we don't do anything with it. Or oftentimes I can speak from my own experience that I just am indifferent because there's so much mess in this world. I'm just indifferent, and what I begin to do is begin to be desensitized to all the problems around me, even problems of fellow Christians around me. And I insulate myself from the problems of the world because it's a lot easier to live in comfort. And just to make sure that my fantasy football team's right today so I can beat my buddy over here. Man, we get indifferent and insulated and desensitized to God's world and the, and the plight of people and the affluence oftentimes that we live in, and we can enjoy life. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to enjoy beating this guy in fantasy football today. We can enjoy life, but do we have a burden? Do you have a burden that God has put on your heart, and what do you do with it? Does your heart break? Let me say it this way. Does your heart break for things that break the heart of God? Does your heart break for the things that Break the heart of God. Do we stop with the emotional response and move anywhere past that? I want you to see what Nehemiah does next. See, because it's one thing to have a burden, but what is Nehemiah going to do with the burden that he has? I mean, he's 800 miles away. He's in Susa. He's 800 miles away from Jerusalem. So what can I really do about it? I mean, the dis- that distance is about the distance from here to Destin, Florida. I've been there. You've been there? Vacationing? But, but let me tell you this. How about, what are you going to do 800 miles away from Destin? You don't have a car. You got to walk. You got to walk through Louisiana, man. You got to walk through the swamp. You don't even get to the white beach until you get there you got to go out and walk through trouble to get there. What are you going to do with this burden when you're that far away and there's that much trouble between you and that burden? What are you going to do? Look at what he does next, verse 5 through 11. i got a few Cajuns in here. I had to go there. 5 through 11. This is your second mark of a godly leader. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear my, what does he do? Prayer. 
The prayer of your servant that I now pray before you this day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people, them, Israel, which have sinned against you, but not just them, even I, and my father's house, I have sinned. For we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments or the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. But remember, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. We talked about that amongst the peoples. But if you return, here's the beauty. Here's the good father. But if you return to me, keep my commandments. Though you are outcast and are in the uttermost parts of heaven, From there I will gather them and bring them to this place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. For they are your servants and your people whom you have, look at the word, redeemed. You've brought back to yourself in spite of them by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive. Look at the confidence to approach God. Ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight and fear your name, and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. You see, godly leaders not only have a burden, but godly leadership is marked by humility before God and patient confidence in his promises. That's what is filled up in this prayer that Nehemiah prays to God. He's not left with just the burden. He prays. He gets on his knees and he prays. And he humbles himself before God. Do you see it? There's two ways that he humbles himself before God. The one of them is obvious. He confesses his sin. He confesses Israel's sin. He confesses his family's sin to God. That takes some humility to go before God and say, it's me. It's not anybody else's. It's my problem too. But there's something else that he confesses. He confesses who God is. Notice, he's under Persian rule. They believe in a lot of false gods, a lot of them. And he says, you're the God of heaven. He confesses that there's only one true God, Yahweh. And notice the other aspects of who he says God is. He is great and awesome. He keeps covenant and steadfast love for those who love him and keep his commandments. He comes down, he confesses. And then you see him doing something else. He gives thanksgiving to God. Do you see it? You are faithful. Here's the deal. Nehemiah is not making these things up like we kind of do with God. Well, it's just my truth that I think and I feel that God is faithful and he keeps his covenant and he's all these things. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying, I know this to be true about God because God has revealed himself and who he is, and I've also watched God be faithful to what he says he will do. This prayer is rooted in right understanding of who God has revealed himself to be and how Nehemiah has seen God at work, both to scatter and bring his own people back. He takes God at his word. Do you see that? And he asks God for something. You ever go to God in prayer and you're like, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't ask. Maybe I shouldn't do that. You know, my life's all messed up and I've got problems. I need to clean myself up before I go ask God for something. He acknowledges his sin. But then he says, listen, God. And you know what he does? He doesn't ask for something over here. He said, you need to, I want you to be faithful to what you said you would do if we return. There's confidence in Nehemiah 
It's not his confidence. He's confident in his God. Do you see that? I want you to notice the connection between the word of God here and prayer. He's not making stuff up when he comes to God. He is looking at God and saying, this is who you are. This is who I am before you. Be faithful to who you say you will be. If we return, would you bring us back? Would you restore us? Would you redeem us? But he doesn't do that in his own vacuum, in his own feelings, in his own thoughts. He knows the word of God. You know, we get that weird sometimes. We get that wrong sometimes. You're like, when we talk about um, the means of grace that God gives us, prayer and God's words or spiritual disciplines, you're like, well, you know, you just really need to pray. You don't need to worry about God's word over here. God's word informs the way you ought to pray. Or maybe you say, well, I just read my Bible and it's not a big deal that I pray. God's word informs the way you pray. It's a result of that. They're connected. We can't disconnect prayer and the word of God. Our prayers ought to be saturated with the word of God because we're not calling on God for what we think he is, but what we know he is according to his word. Amen? There's something else, though, beautiful about prayer since we're talking about it. Here are some of the, just the tangible things about prayer that are, that are beautiful, and I think you see them in Nehemiah's life as well. Prayer makes, and, and this is hard, but the first one, prayer makes you wait. Anybody like that? Prayer makes you wait. It looks like here, notice Nehemiah doesn't re- react. He prays. He doesn't run to Destin through the swamp Immediately when he hears, he doesn't react in anger. He doesn't just emote and then walk away and, and, and go about his business as a cupbearer to the king. He stops and he prays. And it says he prays for how long? Days. What we find out in the next chapter is he's going to keep praying for a few months before he chooses to act Prayer makes us wait. See, you can't pray and work at the same time. You've got to leave some things with God. Prayer does something else, though, I think. I think prayer clears our vision. And let me explain what I mean. I love Southern California. I don't like the politics of California any more than you do. Some of you moved here because of that. But I love Southern California. I can wear my golf shorts and my vest and play golf. It's a beautiful place. But there's something interesting that happens. Nobody's, Nobody's smiling. Everybody hates Cal. Like, what's the deal? Like, let's just be honest. It's a beautiful place to be. All right, maybe it's just me. <laughs> Think about Southern California, though, in the morning. If you're near the beach, you've got cool air coming off the Pacific. You've got humid, hot sun coming down. So what happens? There's a fog. And it's not until the sun pushes the fog out that you can see You ever in a place in your life where you don't understand what's going on? It's just foggy. Life is foggy. You can't see what's next, and you wonder, and you have anxiety, and can't figure it out, and you grumble, and you complain. And prayer is kind of like the sun pushing the fog away. It clears our vision for what's next. It also quiets our hearts. And maybe it's just me another time, but anxiety, fear, 
from circumstances of our life. We take that to other people. Rightfully, sometimes we take that to a counselor. You know where God wants us to take that? To him. Cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. See, prayer quiets our hearts. Prayer replaces that anxiety oftentimes with peace, at least the peace that God provides. Somebody said it this way, our knees don't knock when we're on our knees. We're scared and we're wondering what's going to happen and last The beautiful thing about prayer is that it ignites or activates our faith. See, I'm way more prone to trust God with whatever the heck's going on in my life. It's a mess when I come to him in prayer and trust him in prayer. It activates faith to trust him through the hard. Remember I gave you the example of Brother Andrew who went to all these crazy places to help the persecuted church and he brought Bibles there he tells some crazy stories, but he also tells about his prayer life, and he says, you know, when I would come to a border crossing, I had this smuggler's prayer that I would pray. Maybe you've heard it. He said, Lord, you gave the blind sight, so now I need, the blind, I need blind eyes who can see not to see, not to see the Bibles that I'm bringing and the burden that I'm bringing to give to the persecuted church that they may see the light of the word of God. We need to be people who are humbled before God and have a patient confidence in his promises. I want you to think about a patient, maybe reckless confidence that a guy like Brother Andrew had in his God with the burden that he had given him. So C3, are you confident in the character of God revealed in his word? Does that drive your prayer life? Does it motivate you to live by faith. Godly leadership is marked by burden. It's marked by humility and confidence in God. But what can Nehemiah really do from Susa to Jerusalem, this three-month journey away? See, God's got something going. God's got some plans that he's drawing up that you really haven't seen in this text yet. Look at the last phrase of verse 11. This is interesting because you don't find this out unless you know it already about Nehemiah. You know he's in Susa. You know he's a Jew. But in this text, if you're reading it for the first time, look at what it says. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. You ever met someone before and you don't really know who they are? And you treat them a certain way. And then you find out from somebody else who they are. And there's a person of influence and power. I feel like this when I come to the text. I'm like, I didn't realize. You don't realize that Nehemiah is in a position of power in the Persian government. That's his work. He's not a priest or pastor or Levite or anything spiritual like that. He has secular work. And he is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And maybe you say, well, cupbearer sounds kind of menial. Well, let me tell you about a cupbearer. A cupbearer certainly's job was to make sure that the, the drink and the food that the king ate was not poisoned, so he's eating that stuff. And so you're like, well, that's a really menial job because this is just a body bag. Like, this guy's going to get off for the king, right? 
And while that is true, the cupbearer of the king was a high position. If we put it in today's vernacular, the cupbearer would be like the head of secret service for the president of the United States. That's a high position. His his life is a bit in danger, but it's a high position. It's a close position to the president, and that's the position that we're talking about here. A Jew in exile, all the way elevated to the right hand of King Artaxerxes, a confidant, a trusted man by his side. Can I give you the point? The third point is this. It's not really about Nehemiah. Godly leadership is marked by a recognition that God puts us in places of influence to accomplish his sovereign providential plans even when you don't realize it. You catch that? He's a cupbearer to the king. He's close. If you know your Bible, here's what you know. You've seen this happen all the way through the Old Testament. In all these different major kingdoms, you've seen this. Remember Egypt? Remember Joseph, the Jew, treated ill by his brothers, left for dead, put into slavery, put down in a pit? Where does he end up? He ends up at the right hand of the Pharaoh. He's a Jewish man, at the right hand of Pharaoh. And he has a dream. And Pharaoh needs interpretation, right? And he gives him the interpretation of the dream, his right hand. And there's, why? Because God said there was going to be a famine. And you know what Israel needed to preserve? They needed food for the famine, and Joseph was there. And you remember what happened? All the ill and all the awful that happened to Joseph by his own family. The Bible says God meant it for good. What men meant for evil, God meant for good. He had a providential plan. He had a sovereign plan. And it also involved suffering, which is hard for us to understand. But he was elevated for God's purposes in Egypt. Same with Moses, right? Think about Moses. Let my people go. He was spared. He was a baby that was spared a Jewish baby that was spared. And he became the adopted son of the Pharaoh. And he left and he came back and he delivered people out of slavery of Egypt. You think God's working behind the scenes here? Let's just move on to the Babylonian Empire. Who do we know that was high official, high-ranking person in the Babylonian Empire? Remember Daniel in the lion's den? Remember the old story, kids? Daniel got exiled into Babylon with these people. And they changed his name and his culture, and he said, I won't defy God. I believe. And he's elevated, even though he goes through the mess that he goes through. And God uses him to protect his people. Now, let's get to the Persian Empire, because this is blow your mind. What Jewish woman do you know became the queen, ladies, of Persia? Esther. You know what her husband was? Xerxes, the Persian king, saved Israel. She saved Israel. God used her to save Israel. Providentially put her in place. Where'd she live? Susa, capital, Persia. Anybody know who Xerxes' son is? Artaxerxes. Guy in this text, right? Artaxerxes. Esther is the stepmom of Artaxerxes. You think God's at work? Here, next chapter, what we're going to see is Nehemiah. We don't see a connection in the Bible 
historically between these two, but they're contemporaries. And it's likely, very likely, that Esther knew Nehemiah. Esther, stepmother to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes, king, cupbearer, Nehemiah. What's Nehemiah going to do? He's going to go before the king next week, and he's going to ask to go back to Jerusalem. You think, maybe, I do. Esther puts a word in Artaxerxes' ear. Let him go. God's working. Whether you see it or not, God is working providentially in circumstances. God always puts people in places for his purposes, whether they understand it or not or see it or not. He's always working. And it's often through difficulty, suffering. Think also Jesus Christ. That the Father put his son on a cross to pay for your sins and my sins. God's working sovereignly in the suffering of Christ for your good and his glory. So let me ask you. Do you believe that God has positioned you right where you're at? No, Pastor, I, I just work a menial job. I don't even like it. I'm going to find a different one. I just have a boring life. I go to work, come home, hang out with my kids, go to the game, play fantasy football. Here we go again. A boring life. God has plans, y'all. You might not even realize it. He has plans. He's put you in a place of influence for the people around you whose walls are broken down, maybe just like yours are or were, to make his name great. Do you believe that in your work? Do you believe that in the menial of life, God is working? That changes the way you see your life. That changes the way you see your vocation. He wants to use you. And maybe it's not to go back to a place and rebuild a wall and this grand thing but he's providential in your life as well. Do you recognize it? Man, Nehemiah is this godly leader. He's this leader who recognizes he's in this place of authority and leadership. Next week, we're going to see what he does. He has a humility before God, which is a mark of a godly leader, and confidence in God. He has a burden that he does something about. But see, Nehemiah is much of a godly leader as he is, what we're going to see at the end of Nehemiah, not to discourage you, is that people, although things are rebuilt, people's hearts are still far from God. You see, Nehemiah points to the ultimate leader in Jesus. When I see these characteristics, I can't help but think of a greater Nehemiah. I can't help but think of Jesus, the ultimate leader the Jesus who knows your sins and your struggles and your sorrows, who sees the wall of your life broken down, who grieves and wants to see the Father's name be made great in your life to bring restoration to you. He carries your burden if you let him. And where does he carry your burden to? He carries your burden to a cross. He humbles himself. And he carries your burden to a cross where he dies on your behalf. He sacrifices his life for yours. Men, that's leadership. That he lays down your life, his life, for yours. On a cross, 
He bore your sin and shame because he loves you. And he also does it because he's confident, that he's confident in his sovereign, his father's sovereign plans for him. That though he may be slain, he will live and be resurrected and provide life and eternal life for you. Do you know that ultimate leader, the one who takes your burden upon himself, that you might have life in his name? Do you know him? You know, I thought long and hard about the end of this sermon all week, and it just didn't come to me until this morning. It just happened, sorry. How do I end this? I mean, I've talked to you a lot about godly leadership. It just felt too small, though. You see, the book of Nehemiah is about leadership, and Nehemiah's leadership, the point's to the ultimate leader, but here's what you need to know. Here's what God's people needed to know then because they had abandoned him and walked away from him and they felt the shame of that. The bigger picture is this for us today, this morning. God will not forsake his children. God will not forsake his children. When you think about it as a parent, you think about what you call your children to, and children, what your parents call you to. And even when you wander away, he's there. There's an open door for you to return, for you to return and come back home. Here's your takeaway. God will not forsake his children. Come back home. Let me pray.